Deadbeat Scroll by Mark Coggins is slick, sardonic, and suspenseful. Everything a great thriller should be, says New York Times bestselling author Lee Child. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 24 Film at 11 My phone woke me at an ungodly hour the next morning. Get your ass down here, Lieutenant Kittredge growled. Where's here? Look out your window. I rolled out of bed in my underwear and crept up to the window that fronted Post Street. There, smack in the middle of the bus stop, was an obvious unmarked police car. Kittredge was leaning against the near side of the car, a donut in one hand and his cell phone in the other. He waved at me with his donut hand. Did you get one for me? Of course not. Just get the hell down here. I started to ask if I had time for a shower, but he hung up halfway through the question. I decided to take that as a no. I went to the bathroom to do the best I could with a wash rag and some deodorant then threw on last night's clothes. Kittredge was already behind the wheel by the time I made it down. I got in next to him as a bus rumbled up to the stop. The driver gave a fulsome toot on his horn, which Kittredge acknowledged with an equally fulsome bird flipped over his shoulder. Nice, I said, as he pulled away. Sharing is caring. I'm sure that's how the SF Muni sees it. Where are we going? The performance kitchen. Can you expand on that a bit? Some kind of theater, apparently. Okay. What's more important is that it's on Turk Street, just across from the SRO, where you found Mrs. Kongsheng Chai and the Doe Girl from Golden Fingers. Ah. Kittredge took a hard ride on Mason, chasing a pedestrian back onto the sidewalk. And what's even more important is they have security cameras. And those cameras cover the SRO as well? He brought a finger to his nose. Now you're getting it. One of my men interviewed the staff during a canvas of the neighborhood and found out about the cameras. He learned they retained the old videos for a week before recording over them. And he had them go back four nights to the time we think the two women got shot. And tortured. Yes, and tortured, and he found some footage of the women going into the apartment. That's it? No, there's more. The footage shows him going into the apartment closely escorted by two men who might have been holding guns. I slapped the dash. All right, can you see their faces? Briefly, or so I'm told. They've got the footage queued up for us, and I'm hoping you'll be able to identify the mystery men who took a shot at you outside your apartment. Who the men were was less of a mystery to me now, but I wasn't admitting that to him. Multiple shots, I insisted. They took multiple shots at me. I admire that about you, Reardon. When you cook up a story, you stick to it. Right down to all the fantastic little details. It can't be fantastic if you're having me watch a video to confirm it. 
Kittredge wheeled the car into Turk Street, then coasted into a loading zone in front of a three-story cotton candy pink building with a neon marquee. He shoved the transmission into park. We are watching the video to see if you recognize the men. Exactly where you ran into them is an open question. What about the slugs I collected? Have you had them analyzed to see if they were fired by the same gun that killed Chris? He popped open the door. They've been analyzed, all right, but we'll talk about that later. Come on. We went up to the double glass doors of the building. Lettering on the glass said that the performance kitchen was a space for art and community and that the box office opened 45 minutes before showtime. Kittredge tried the door handle anyway. It was locked. He tapped on the glass with his class ring. Eventually, a rail-thin woman in her late 30s with brittle kinked hair materialized from the gloom at the back of the building. She undid several locks on the door and pushed it open a crack. Yes? Lieutenant Kittredge with the SFPD. Are you Maddie Dashelheim? Yes. Detective Donaldson spoke with you. Yes. Please follow me. She led us past a box office with a sliding glass window and through a curtained doorway. The room behind it was tiny, cluttered, and filled with a musty smell. Posters from old shows were scotch-taped to the walls, and what I assume were props from the same shows were stacked in piles on the bare concrete floor. A shelf about waist height ran along the back wall. A TV monitor cycling through various views inside and outside the building sat on the shelf next to several boxy electronics and a wireless keyboard. Maddie threaded her way around the props to the shelf where she picked up the keyboard with a bony hand. She dropped into a decrepit office chair and wheeled it around to peer up at us. Do you mind if I sit? I've been up all night getting ready for our opening. A new show? I asked. What's it called? The woman smiled and leaned forward in the chair, showing the first flicker of life since we came in. Autoimmunity and the body politic. Kittredge's eyes bored into me as I asked, And what's it about? Well, that's a hard question to answer in just a few words. It's an interpretive dance dramatizing the circle of toxicity our communities have endured since the rise of capitalism, the patriarchy, and institutionalized religions. Does it have a cappella singing? The lieutenant really likes a cappella singing. No, they're screaming, but no real singing. Too bad. Can we get back to the reason for our visit? Kittredge asked tightly. I understand you have video that might be helpful to an investigation. Maddie sighed and pulled the keyboard closer in her lap. Your Detective Donaldson seemed to think so. I've made a copy of the segment to prevent it from being overwritten. When is it from? asked Kittredge. It starts at about 1.22 a.m. five days ago. I should mention that it's really six videos, or the feed from six cameras we have on the property. Kittredge grunted. But not all of them are outside, are they? No, only three. Two are in front, and one is in back. But there's a gated parking lot in back, so we don't have much issue there. I can switch between the feeds during replay to focus on the ones I believe you're interested in. 
the two that looked down on Turk Street across to the hotel. Let's see. She pressed a key. The monitor switched from a live feed to a frozen checkerboard of six images taken at night. Each had a timestamp of 122, 16.3 seconds in the lower right corner. It was obvious which two came from the cameras at the front of the building. The entryway to the Sarbarbe was visible in both. Harsh floodlights on the building were throwing spidery shadows across the sidewalk in the street, but one camera appeared to be at a higher vantage point than the other. Where exactly are the cameras? I asked. One is on our roof line. That's the feed you see in the upper left corner. The other is above our front door, the feed next to it. I'll start the playback, then we can switch between these two as we like. She tapped another key and the timestamps began spinning forward in fractions of a second. Nothing happened for a long moment, then a dark SUV rolled into view. The driver pulled to a stop just before the loading zone in front of the theater. Turk Street was one way running right to left, so the driver was on our side. After killing the lights in the engine, he popped the door and stepped out. He kept his back to the cameras as he closed it, but when he hustled around to the front of the car, his profile came into better view. Stop, I said. Can we isolate this from the closer camera? Maddie paused the recording and fiddled some more with her keyboard. The screen switched to a full-frame view from the camera above the theater door and gave us a good look at the driver's face. It was pale and foxy-looking, with something of a Slavic cast to it. Andreas, the number one son of the family. With the benefit of the bigger picture, I could see the faint glint of a gun held down low by his side. Well? asked Kittredge. That's definitely one of them. I didn't want to get into the daddy and son business, so I added, the sidekick, I think. The other guys seem to be in charge. Maddie nodded. There's another man in the car. You'll see him in a second, but the view isn't as good. Roll it, said Kittredge. She went back to the checkerboard view and hit play. Andreas finished going around the front of the car and opened the rear passenger door. He pulled somebody out. Then two more people slid out in quick succession. It was hard to see exactly who or even what sex they were at first. The view of the theater door camera was blocked by the bulk of the SUV, and the roof camera was too high. Once the group began walking across the street, however, the roof camera picked them up. Maddie showed it on the monitor in isolation without being asked. Accompanying Andreas was a shorter, chubbier man, and they were frog-marching a pair of females between them. One woman was taller and thinner with long hair, undoubtedly Tuyin Do, and the shorter with bobbed hair, Mrs. Kongsheng Chai. That's the hooker and Mrs. Kongsheng Chai, said Kittredge. Yeah, but I can't really say anything definite about the other guy. There's a moment coming up, said Maddie. She let the recording run again until the foursome crossed the street, and Tuyin began fumbling in her bag for the keys to the front door. The shorter man turned to look behind them, perhaps worried about being observed. Maddie froze the frame. His face was not much more than a pale smudge, but I recognized Brendan from the lima bean shape of his head. That's the other one. Are you sure? He's pretty far away, asked Kittredge. I'm certain about the first dude and at least 80% on this guy. Yeah, okay. Kittredge turned to Maddie. 
I'll be sending a lab tech to make a copy of the recordings. We may be able to enhance the images. She sighed and slumped back in the chair. Fine. Just tell them to knock loudly when they come. I'll probably be napping in back. Thank you. You've been very helpful. Yes, thank you, I echoed. Yeah, yeah. The best way to thank me is by supporting the theater. Maddie leaned forward to extract two postcards from the hip pocket of her jeans and held them out. For the new show. I took them both and passed one to Kittredge. The front of the card had a picture of an amorphous mass of people covered by a translucent sheet of plastic writhing on the floor. A red light under the plastic flooded the scene with an eerie glow. Kino, I exclaimed. Kittredge held his face in a neutral expression, grabbed me by the sleeve, and pulled me out of the room. Kino, he mimicked under his breath as we went out the front door. Acapella singing, you dick. We stopped on a sidewalk by the front bumper of his car. The air outside felt clean and bracing after the musty funk of the prop room. What about the bullets? I asked. Kittredge passed his postcard over to me without responding. I put both of them in the breast pocket of my jacket. Well? Yes, the bullets. That's an interesting story. The ones you gave me were not fired by the gun that killed Duckworth and Corinne White. They weren't? How many bad guys could be going around San Francisco shooting people with twenty twos? Hold your horses. There's more. They did match the ones that killed the Doe Girl and Mrs. Kongsheng Chai. I thought about it. That still fits. Both guys had guns when I saw them. They took turns. Maybe, but there's still more. We ran slugs from both guns against our ballistics database. The ones from the gun that killed Duckworth and White matched a slug from yet another murder. What murder? A rare book dealer on 3rd Street. He was killed during a store robbery about a month ago. I should have seen that one coming. It had to be Finger Hut. If Corinne had taken the Kerouac manuscript to Finger Hut for an opinion after she found it, Finger Hut might have shared the information with Brendan and Andreas. The lure of a previously undiscovered Kerouac manuscript brought them to San Francisco and somehow prompted them to murder Finger Hut, either to keep the fine quiet or because Finger Hut hadn't been able to deliver the goods. Thinking all this took too long. Kittredge narrowed his eyes. You've gone awfully quiet there, Reardon. Something ring a bell for you? I felt my face grow stiff with the effort of lying. No. Just trying to figure out how the worlds of rare books and prostitution fit together. Kittredge paused as a disheveled guy in baggy sweats and a backward baseball cap went by pulling a roller suitcase. When he had bumped out of earshot, the lieutenant cleared his throat. Ahem! <clears throat> They don't really fit, do they? And neither do Corinne White and her sister. He paused. You haven't heard from her. Angelina, I mean. I shook my head. This is just my opinion, but I think if they were going to kill her, they would have done it in the hotel. They haven't exactly gone out of their way to cover their tracks. They want her for something. I hope you're right. He shot his cuffs and brought his hands up to smooth the hair on either side of his head. Yeah, well, there's one more wrinkle on the bullets. 
The ones from the gun that killed Kongsheng Chai and the Doe Girl might be magnums. Magnums? There's such a thing as 22 magnums? You're behind the times, Reardon. There is such a thing, and they have more zip than a 22 long rifle, of course. Some even say they're powerful enough for concealed carry self-defense, but I wouldn't go that far. But the slug's the same size, right? How do you even tell if it's a magnum versus a long rifle? There's no definitive way. The ballistics guy says recovered magnum slugs are often more deformed than long rifles. It's a judgment call, but he thinks the ones you gave us show more deformation than you would normally get after hitting metal and masonry from across the street. So after giving me shit about my story on the way over here, you're saying you thought I was telling the truth all along. Not based on your word, but after the ballistics results came back, I did send the lab guys to check the front of your building. They found another round in the gutter and fresh chips on the grill and building facade. What do we gain by knowing they were shooting magnums? In at least one of the guns, anyway. Fuck if I know. But I'll tell you one thing, Reardon. You're still not coming clean in all this. There's something you're holding back. Something to do with a book dealer, maybe. If you want to save Angelina, and you want to get these jokers for murdering Duckworth, you're going to have to play straight with me. This is coming to a head. I can feel it. You need to get out of the way and let me do my job. My phone saved me from having to respond. With Kittredge glaring at me, I pulled it out to see who was calling. I answered, figuring I would tell Gretchen I would call back in a minute. I never got that far. Without bothering to say hello, she blurted, August, did you text me from the ICU? Uh, no. You know I'm... Then get your ass over here. Someone has trashed our office. You have been listening to The Deadbeat Scroll, a book the New York Journal of Books described as a glorious potpourri of violence, black humor, sex, and a hunt for a lost manuscript. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>